So um, everybody's finishing up getting their coffee and their snacks. Uh, we're going to be in Esther chapter 8. So while they're getting their refills and you're turning to Esther 8, um, let me just see if I can recap everything that we've learned to this point in the book of Esther. Here we go. So there's, an, there's a king. His name is Xerxes. He is an egomaniac, right? He loves, he loves being king of the world. He's, he rules the world, the known world at that time. Um, he, he loves for people to bow to his ego, and so he throws a big party, remember this, and people drink for months and months and months, and then he calls his queen and says, I want you to come in, and I want you to parade in front of a drunken room full of men, and she says no. She refuses to bow to his ego, so he says, you're out, and I'm going to find a replacement by auditioning a bunch of virgins, and so one of the ones that he likes the most, her name is Esther, a young girl named Esther, she becomes queen. She's also a Jew, Right? And so she's been raised by her cousin. His name's Mordecai. And her cousin says, look, for, for right now, don't tell anybody who you are. Keep your identity secret. Just go be queen. Um, he, he stops an assassination attempt. Remember, there's an assassination attempt on the king. And the king gets, he, he hears about it, but he doesn't reward him. So Mordecai goes unrec- unrecognized for what he did. Um, eventually, Mordecai um, meets up with this guy named Haman, who's second in command in the whole Persian empire. And he refuses to bow to pay any respect at all, any honor at all to Haman, and it drives Haman nuts. Um, Mordecai to Haman is like the person that gets under your skin, like you just see them and you're like, right? And so Haman, um, he hates Mordecai. He finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and so he wants to get rid of Mordecai, and he hates Mordecai so badly that he doesn't want to just get rid of Mordecai. He wants to get rid of all the Jews. So he has a meeting with the king. Xerxes, and he convinces the king that, hey, what you should do is this. You should um, sign off on a 24-hour killing spree so we can kill all the Jews. He doesn't tell them that they're Jews. He just says, you've got some people that won't respect you, so you should let me kill them. The king says, that sounds great. He signs off on it, so there's going to be like this, the purge in Persia, right? There's going to be this purge where they kill all the Jews. Well, Esther's a Jew, right? And so she's going to be killed too. And so she suddenly has this brilliant idea. Maybe I should tell the king who I really am. Maybe somehow that will help. And so she outs herself as a Jew at the same banquet where she outs Haman as the jerk that wants to kill the Jews. The king, understandably, has a little bit of wrath, right? He gets mad because somebody's trying to make him look bad by getting to his queen. And so the king has Haman killed. He has Haman killed on the same gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai. So Haman's dead. He's gone, and the king needs a drink, right? I don't know if the king really needed a drink, but the, the king drinks a lot in this book. There's a lot of alcohol in this book, and so he's always drinking, always having banquets. So that's kind of where we pick it up. We're in Esther chapter 8. Um, what's going on in Esther chapter 8 is it says, now the same day, the same day. This is like the sermon before the sermon, okay? Uh, depending on what you're facing in your life, the first two verses of chapter 8 It's like a reversal like only God can do. Only God can reverse things like that. It says the same day. What day is this? It's the day when Esther woke up and wasn't sure if she was going to live or die. It's the day when Haman woke up and was pretty sure that he was going to get rid of Mordecai and take over even more, have more power. It's that same day, the same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which had been with Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. This is a reversal. It's amazing what God just pulled off in those two verses. Everything that was against 
Esther and Mordecai is now with Esther and Mordecai. Like the guy that was trying to take them out, now Mordecai's wearing that guy's ring. Now Esther's been given that guy's estate. Like uh, he won't need it anymore. He's dead. So somebody needs to take care of it. Here, Esther, it's a gift from the king. And she says, great, I'll get my, my cousin Mordecai to go run it. I mean, everything is great, isn't it? I love reversals like that. I mean, I don't know why sometimes reversals take longer. Maybe you're facing something and you've been praying for years and years and years. And you're like, God, when are you going to U-turn this thing and reverse it in my favor? And sometimes they happen the same day. But God has the ability to reverse things. This reminds me of a couple of verses. Um, Genesis 50-20. Like Joseph at the end of his life. Genesis 50-20 says this. What the enemy meant for harm, God turned for good. We love verses like that. We make t-shirts out of verses like that. Romans 8.28. For God can work all things to the good who are called according to the purpose of Christ Jesus. It reminds me of a verse. Haman lived this out on Proverbs 26.27. It's a great verse. The irony of God, right? Proverbs 26.27 says this. And Haman just lived it out. If you dig a ditch for someone else to fall into, you'll probably fall into that ditch. If you push a rock, try to push a rock on somebody else, it says the rock will roll back on you. I mean, isn't that what we just found out in Haman? Haman's like, I'm going to take care of I'm going to wipe all the Jews out. Now who's dead? Haman, right? Like what the trap he set up for other people was actually used on himself. So as good as these two verses are, I realized something. As good as these two verses are, the next day when Esther and Mordecai woke up, I mean, they're still on death row, aren't they? They're still going to die. They're still Jews. There's still a law that says on a certain day, everybody can take up arms, weapons, and just wipe the Jews out. They're still on death row. Even if they have better robes, a better house, they're still in a bad place. And so what we're going to look at this morning is kind of what they did in this circumstance, how they handled this, and what can we learn from it. And the first thing that we're going to see is that they were in a position to change things. Um, if you're writing down notes, I just want you to write this down. God wants you to get upstream. Okay, and that's a different kind of a phrase, and I'm going to try to explain it as I see it in this chapter. wasn't quite how I thought this chapter was going to go for me, but the more I studied it, I mean, this just became more and more evident. God wants us to get upstream. He wants us to get as far upstream. We see that in, in the ver first few verses of chapter 8. Esther's pleading with the king to save her life because no matter how good things are, she still faces death. And he's like, I can't do anything about it. Remember that law of the Medes and Persians? Like once it's done, once that signet ring goes on there, I can't stop it. I can't reverse it. I can't appeal it. And so they said, wait a second, you know what you could do? You could write something to override it. In verse 5 it says, let an order be written overruling that previous law. So basically, you ever done that game where like hand and then hand and then hand and who like, whoever gets on top? Like gets to bat first, right? That's kind of what's going on. There's a law. Let's write another law. Let's overrule the law. And so it's like, let's overrule it. And I want you to see that. They actually wrote a law that overruled it. Um, we're not going to read verses 9 through 14, but what that covers is once they wrote the law that overruled it, verses 9 through 14 just explains how they got the word out, how they got the fastest horses, the best riders. They sent it to 127 provinces. They made sure the whole world knew in every language that the world spoke that there was a new law, that th that same day that the Jews could be killed, the Jews could also kill. That sounds kind of weird. We'll talk about all that next week, right? The Jews could defend themselves. And so they get all that word out. That's what they're doing in, in verses 9 through 14. But what I want you to see here about getting upstream is what happened in verse 7. The king's talking. He says this, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, 
And here's what he said. Because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther, and they've hanged him on the gallows. Verse 8. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews. Who is he talking to? Esther and Mordecai. Who's rewriting the law? Not the king's wise men, not even the king. Esther and Mordecai. He turns to them and says, hey, I got an idea. Let's think about rewriting. Hey, you write the law. And he says, you write it as seems best to you. Uh, just, just out of curiosity, don't answer this out loud. But if you, if you closed your eyes and you pictured the one person in your life that just drives you nuts, and somebody could give you all the legislative power and say, hey, write a law to take care of them. What are you writing? Just think about that. Uh, give him ice cream. Nah, you're not writing that, right? What are you writing? He says, as seems best to you. Man, you've got all the power. They want to kill you? Write a law to overrule that. As seems best to you. What I want you to see is this. They were in a position in that government to actually change the way things ran. They were upstream. We've seen this all the way through the book, this sovereign God working through choices, good and bad, to get people in position for what he wants them to do. God put Esther and Mordecai in this position, and I think he wants to put us in this position as well. Um, let me try to explain the concept of upstream, because um, when I think upstream, I think salmon, right? Like salmon swimming upstream. And if salmon swim upstream, the end of their life might not be so good, right? I love demotivators. Demotivators, demotivators are fantastic. So it says ambition, the journey of a thousand miles, sometimes ends very, very badly, right? So you picture like the preacher's telling me to get upstream, to fight hard, to work hard, to get as far upstream as I possibly can so that I can be eaten. Thanks, Pastor, right? <laughs> That's, so let's define what do we mean by upstream? It definitely takes work and patience to get upstream. But here's your big idea today. Here's what I want you to remember. If we want to change the course of culture, we've got to get to the source of culture. If we want to change the course of culture, we've got to get to the source of culture. Um, I'm going to tell you a couple stories and show you a video clip in a minute. And I'm going to try to, I'm, I'm trying to take a lot of avenues to make sure that you get what I'm saying. Because I think this is critical. And we see it played out in Esther chapter 8. First story is this. I was in um, India. I've been there like, th like three times. The last time I was in India, um, I saw this image that I, I just can't forget it. And here's, I'm going to try to describe India. It's really hard to do. I went two times without Wendy, and I'd come home going, oh, India is like this and this, and it smells like this, and there's so much. And she, she goes the last time, and I said, how did I do describing India? And she's like, not even close, right? Like, you try to tell people what it's like until you're there. They don't know, but there's, India is, this is the understatement of the year, it's, it's dirty. Like India is filthy. They're, I mean, I don't mean the people are, they're great people, but like there's just trash everywhere. Like there's like trash and, and there's animals and it's just sewage. I mean, it's just crazy. And so we went to this one spot where you park whatever you drove there in. Maybe it's a minivan, maybe it's a bus, but you get this place where you can't drive vehicles any further in. So you, you get off and you start walking down the sidewalk. It's kind of like a sidewalk, um, but there's people everywhere. So like if this is one side of the road where and then the other side of the sidewalk's over here, like all this in here is filled with people, rickshaws, bicycles, motorcycles, animals. I mean, everybody whoo, there. Like they tell you, take your backpack. I don't, don't be a man. Be a sissy. Take your backpack. 
fling it around and hold it like this, and it does feel very unmanly to do that. And then you like lock arms and like holding on to people. You just, that's, that's, you walk from a mile like that. It's crazy. We had a woman that stepped into open sewage while we were going. It was like, bless you, just baptized her foot and it's going to fall off. You know, whatever. I mean, like that's, it's just dirty. And you're walking down in that spot. I tried to take pictures when you're coming out so I could show Wendy what it was like. And when I got home, got the pictures done, like I'm showing them to her. All you see is like, it's like you're walking through volcanic ash. Because every time you take a picture at night, the flash would reflect all the dust and dirt particles floating around in the, in the air. And so you're like, um, well, that wasn't good. I and mean, you just can't even describe how dirty it is. And this last time we're walking down that section, and this man caught my attention. He's a shop owner, and he's about this tall, and he's got gray hair, and he's got a homemade broom, right? And he's out on his front porch, the front patio of his store, and he's just sweeping away as fast as he can. He's just sweeping People are walking by, like, as soon as he sweeps this, he goes over here and starts sweeping again. And he's back over here getting this cleaned again. And he's just working his tail off, making sure the front of his store is clean. And I thought, this is a picture of a commitment to excellence, isn't it? Like, this guy is like, my store is going to be clean. And then at the same time, I thought, it's not just a picture of excellence. It's a picture of futility, isn't it? Like, he's going to be clean. Like, his store is going to be clean, but all around him is dirty. And it's going to get back up on his store patio. And he's got to keep sweeping and sweeping. He's going to work hard, but he's never going to change the dirty surroundings that he's a part of. We went to Guatemala one time, and um, we were hanging out at a public bathhouse, which um, they called it a pool, but it's just literally where people take baths naked. It's awkward. Um, and so we had to go to the bathroom, and so they had like an outhouse. And so we go down, and we, we open the door. We walk in. It slams behind you. And before you sit down, you see that, like, you ever been in a port john Yeah. It's like, this is like not even as nice as a port john You just see a slab, and you see a hole, and you look through the hole, and you see water below the hole. And you're like, that's weird, right? But you use the bathroom anyway. And then when you walk out, you realize that it's hanging over the river. So like everything you do, number one or two, or a combination, is now in the water floating down. And when you look downstream, you see kids playing and you see people like banging their, their laundry on rocks and trying to clean it. And you're like, that's not soap they're using, right? That's like, ah. Like nothing down there is, yeah, it's gross. Nothing down there is going to be clean, right? Because it's not clean here. I mean, I want you, if you want to change the course of culture, if you want to fix that whole environment, you've got to get upstream and make it clean up here so that it comes down clean. Sometimes I think we're so busy here, I'm going to make my spot clean, man. I'm going to be different. We're not making a difference. And I want you to see that. That sounds so foreign, right? That the gospel is not about you just being different. The gospel is about you making a difference. And if we want to make a difference in our culture, we've got to get upstream. We've got to get far enough upstream. I love how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He said this, and there's a lot here, and I don't fully understand it, but he said this, pray, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that can mean a lot of things, but I know one thing it definitely means he didn't pray for us to stay here and hope to survive and someday get to his kingdom in heaven. Something about the longer that we live here, 
we're supposed to carry something with us so that this begins to look a little bit more like his kingdom does up there. He said, you pray that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to actually have an effect on the culture around us, not just our little spot. The church is really good at sometimes being different, looking different. I'm not so sure that we always make a difference. It's a hard concept to really wrap your brains around. So um, I'm going to show you an, a, a film, a, a little video, four minutes long. It's a long video. And it's, it's from the age when movies weren't quite as visually stunning as they are today, right? Um, I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan or not, but I think we can learn a lot from this because if you're, if you're not a Star Wars fan, you're going to see some pilots that are flying. They're called X-Wing Fighters. And they're the good guys, just so you know. And then there's some other ones, and they shoot green bullets, lasers, lasers. They shoot green lasers, and they're the bad guys, right? And so um, the, they're trying to go and take out, they want to take out the whole empire. And the only way to take out the empire is to take out the Death Star. That sounds fun, doesn't it? What a great story. So I want you to watch this. Hopefully it'll make sense, and I'll come back up and we'll finish. So if you want to take out an empire, you you got to get to the Death Star. you got to take out the entire Death Star, right? I mean, they could, have, they could have circled around that thing forever, just shooting a little bit, causing a little bit of damage. But to actually affect what's going on in that war, they had to take out the whole thing, get as far upstream as they possibly could so they could take the shot that would take it out. Um, how do we get upstream? Let's just talk about that. i got three quick examples. If you're like me... Um, you think, okay, I need to get upstream. You're saying I need to get upstream. I need to, I need to impact culture. So I need to be like president of the United States. Um, how do I do that? I live in Stanley County, right? I mean, what do we do? How do we impact culture from Albemarle, North Carolina? And I want to give you um, three examples because what you've got to see is this. It's not about you positioning yourself. It's not about you pushing your way to the top. It's about something else. So three examples in Scripture. I'll give you some, um, some verses you can read later. But let me just give you three people. First is Joseph. And you just jot these down real quick. Joseph went upstream through character. Um, we, we, we talked about him at the beginning, Genesis 50, 20, is what was said at the end of his life, what the, what the enemy meant for harm. You, God turned it for good. But this is how Joseph went from little old boy who was his father's favorite, so his siblings hated him because, you know, it's tough when your father's got a favorite. He went from that all the way up to second in command of an entire nation. And here's how he did it. He got sold into slavery by his brothers. And when he's in slavery, he's, he's a servant in Potiphar's house. Genesis chapter 40, verses 2 through 6, simply says this, and I'm going to paraphrase, because the same thing is said about Joseph at every stage of his life. It says this, because of his character, Potiphar put, him in, Potiphar put him in charge of everything that he had, his, his, his business affairs, his home. He said, everything I have is yours except my wife. Good call by Potiphar, right? Except for my wife. And what's ironic is that's what got him in trouble because the one thing that Joseph couldn't have, the wife, she wanted Joseph, right? This is like made-for-TV movie stuff. And so um, she tries to get Joseph to sleep with her, and Joseph's like, I'm not going to do it. And, and it gets all twisted around. Eventually, he gets accused of improper things with Potiphar's wife. Potiphar has him thrown in jail. So he's in jail, and he's just in jail serving, doing what he does, where he is. And the, the warden at the jail says, man, let's put him in charge of everything in the prison. 
Same thing at the end of chapter 40. He says the same thing because of Joseph's character, he's put in charge of the prison. And then one chapter later, after he's out of prison finally, and the, the, the Pharaoh, the ruler of the land, has a dream, doesn't know what it means, calls Joseph in and says, we've heard you can interpret dreams. He interprets a dream. And Potiphar's like, uh, Pharaoh's like, well, man, we need to get somebody really brilliant that can kind of help us do what you just said is going to happen. And we can't think of any, anybody more brilliant than you. And so because of his character, he has gone from little kid who his brothers hated him all the way up to he's made second in command of a country, second in command of a nation. Not because he pushed his way up, but because he had character all the way through. Paul, not me, but the real Paul that wrote most of the New Testament. He went upstream. Acts 20, 22 says that his goal was always to go to Jerusalem. Always get to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in that day was as upstream as you could get spiritually. It was the spiritual mecca of the world. He said, I want to get to Jerusalem because if I can get to Jerusalem, I can impact a culture. And then when he got to Jerusalem... He wanted to get to Rome. Rome was as far upstream politically as you could get. We see that in Acts chapter 25. And so he's like, I want to get to Rome. I want to talk to Caesar. I want to go as far as I can politically in this system so I can impact as much of the culture as I possibly can. And here's his journey goes like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If Paul came here, stood on our stage, and gave a testimony, this is the testimony that he would get. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 23 through 28. He says this, I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, and in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold. I have been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Man, this was Paul. That was Paul's journey upstream. How do you journey upstream going through all that stuff? If Joseph got upstream with character, how did Paul get upstream? He got upstream through contentment. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 11. He says, I'm not saying all this because I'm in need, but I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This was Paul, man. Paul said, God, put me anywhere you want to put me. I'll be content in any circumstance. And when God sees that heart, he starts to move him further and further upstream. He eventually has him in Jerusalem. He eventually has him in Rome. And in Jesus has got to be the ultimate example, right? Going to the cross. He went upstream at the cross. Genesis 3.15 was the promise that we got. After um, Adam and Eve sinned, God said about this, about Jesus. He said someday Jesus would come and Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. Now some of you are whacked. You're snake people, right? Like you got pet pythons and junk, and you're the people that like take the selfie, like the snakes all wrapped around you, like snake selfie. Um, it's not me. I hate snakes. Can't stand them. Like if you showed me a lizard, I'd kill it just thinking it might be a snake, right? I'm like, uh, Pastor, snakes don't have legs. Yeah, but they crawl, and that's just looking freaky, so I'm going to kill it. I don't like snakes. 
So I love Genesis 3.15. I love that Jesus came with one mission, to crush the head of the snake. God's desire is not that we just mess around with sin, that we mess around with culture and the bad things in it. His desire is that we actually go as far upstream as we can so that we can take care of it at the source. He sent Jesus to crush the head of the serpent, and that was done through the cross. It's not easy. Going upstream is hard work. Luke twenty-two forty-two. even Jesus was like, if there's any other way besides the cross, if there's any other way, I'd like to do that, please, God. God's like, there's no other way. The cross is the only way. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 says that the cross was the only way. I'm just going to paraphrase it. He says this, that Jesus was obedient and humble to death on a cross. And because he was obedient, because he was humble, God raised him to the highest place. I mean, you, you can't get any more upstream than highest place, right? Jesus went all the way, as high as you could go, as far upstream as possible. This is not about politics. It's not about making sure that our people are in office. Like when Christians can stop using air quotes, won't that be a good day, right? Well, it's us and them. It's the saints and the sinners. If we could just elect all the saints to public office, then our country would be fantastic. It's not about politics. This is not about rallying all your friends to vote for the right people. This is about being the right people. This is about being men of character, being content. This is about being committed to the cross. And when we do that, God's able to position us anywhere he wants in order to further his kingdom, not ours. I used to tell our youth group, my youth group, I said, look, here's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that you would be currency in God's hands and that he would be able to spend you anywhere he gets the most return on his investment. And if it's in a really nice house, great. If it's in a bad house, great. If it's in a good country like America, great. If it's in some poor country, who cares? That God could just spend you anywhere he wants to get the most return on his investment. None of these examples, character, contentment, the cross, none of them are compatible with pushing our way to the top. But all of them make us pliable in God's hands. All of us. They all want to be pliable in God's hands. And that's what this does. It's, it's easy to be different. It's harder to make a difference. And when it, when it comes to the culture, I think the church is, I think we're more like the beginning of Esther chapter 8, aren't we? Like, the bad guy's dead. We got the new robe. We got his house. We're rocking the crib, Right? And we've won the battle, but we're still going to lose the war. That's, I mean, that's how I see church in America. We win a lot of battles, but we're losing the war. Because we're content to be the dude outside his Indian patio. He's just sweeping that patio, man. It's going to be clean. It's, I'm going to be different, but I'm not making a difference. And that's not what God desires for the church. I think what God desires for the church is the end of Esther chapter 8. After the news had gone out, verse 15 says this, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And here's what I want you to see. And the city of Susa had a joyous celebration. Not the church of Susa, right? The city. The city celebrated. The city celebrated. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, 
There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. A commentator says, it's not like fear, like I'm scared of the Jews. It was more like, I can't believe, like all, I can't believe how their God just came through for them. That's what God's after. That's what he wants the church to be like. That, that our city would celebrate because of how God moves through us. Until we get to the source of culture, we'll never change the course of culture. And it starts with a willingness to sacrifice our moment for God's movement. You got hopes and dreams, right? I hope, I hope you have hopes and dreams. I hope you have hopes and dreams. I dream that you have dreams, right? We've all got them. This is about letting God's movement be bigger than my moment. What I love about that really ancient, archaic clip with really bad effects is that they have to take out the Death Star. And only one fighter pilot got to the place where he could take the shot. One of them got hit and had to pull out. One of them slammed into the wall, got shot. And like they're all dying in order to get him where he needs to be. And sometimes we hear a message like this and say, yes, God wants me to be the biggest and the best and the greatest. And I'm going to have a fantastic job. I'm going to pull in six figures for a season and then seven. And it's going to be great. God wants me to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. I'm going to be like the next Tim Tebow, but actually be able to throw the ball. It's going to be fantastic. But that's not, it's not about you. We make it about us. What it's about is, are you willing to put your life in the hands of a sovereign God? And say, I'm all about advancing your kingdom as far upstream as possible. And if my part in doing that is dying here in order to get somebody further, then I'm all in. Man, I'm so full of admiration for people like at D-Day. Can you imagine being on the boats at D-Day? Like, you know, I mean, maybe you try not to think about it, but you know you're going to go die and the only reason you're going to go die is because, hey, guys, if enough of us can storm the beach and all of us get shot and die, when we fall over and the enemy's like, yeah, they're going to freak out because there's a wave coming behind us that will overtake them because we sacrificed our lives. That's what this is about. Like, it's not about me and you. It's not about an agenda. It's not about raises. It's about are we willing to put our lives in the hands of a sovereign God? And say, whatever the cost, I'll pay it. Esther said that. She said, if I perish, I perish. But this is my time, and I'm in the place God wants me to be in. And I'm going to take my stand. It starts with living where you are with character, contentment, taking up your cross, being prepared for whatever God wants to do through you in the places that he positions you. When we get upstream to the source of culture, God changes culture, and it's a good thing. I love what Proverbs 29, 2 says, and then we'll close. It says this, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked are in power, they groan. And that sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? But like, have you ever noticed how you love your job when you have a good boss? And you hate your job when you have a bad boss. Like, the best job in the world becomes the worst job in the world if you have a bad boss. And you can meddle through even the worst jobs if you've got a really good boss and a good team around you. Because when wicked are in authority, people hate it. But when the righteous are in authority, people rejoice. So this morning we're going to end doing this. I, I want you to think about culture. I want you to think about where you fit in culture. Some of you, um, you've got aspirations to be um, 
to be in movies, man, to direct movies, to, to make movies. Maybe you want to be like in the area of, of music. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're an artist. Maybe you've got, and I can't believe that anybody would have aspirations to be political, but maybe you do have aspirations to run for political office. Who knows? But I want to take the time this morning to say, look, God's putting you right where he wants you to be so that he can use you to advance his kingdom further upstream. And we just want to, we want to end this morning praying for those of you that feel legitimately like this call into culture. I, I was, you know, thinking about how great, how great our country would feel and change if the president of the United States had the same influence that Jimmy Fallon has, right? Like, do you think the president just sits at home and watches Jimmy Fallon and just goes, God, why can't I do that? Why can't I pull that off, right? Like I try to do the lip sync, lip sync thing with the guys at Congress and nobody's videoing it, nobody's putting it on YouTube. It shouldn't have the same weight. Like the, the point here is not even about the top positions, but to be in positions that actually can influence culture. I'm not saying that Jimmy Fallon doesn't love Jesus. I don't know Jimmy Fallon, but can you imagine somebody that was sold out to the kingdom of God, that had served with character and contentment, that had carried the message of the cross everywhere they went and had just been put eventually in a position like where Jimmy Fallon is. And everything they do is just being like retweeted and liked and vined and it's all over the place. And everything they're doing is promoting this kingdom of God. That's how you influence culture. That's how you change culture. My days as a pastor having influence over our culture are coming to an end. People don't trust pastors. But the days of the church having influence over the culture are just beginning. And it's because you're called. You're called. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to give you the chance to just think through this, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to get out of here. It's, it's an easy thing to teach. Like, you know, God wants us to make a difference, not just be different. And, you know, don't just... Be out there with your broom, sweeping your patio, but let's clean the whole, the whole India country. I mean, it's easy to preach that, and I think we can kind of see it like, yeah, God wants me to advance as far upstream as I possibly can so that we can change all of culture and change the course of it. But God, how do, how do we apply that? Am I called to that? And, and I, I'm going to try to help you narrow that down in your head. Some of, some of us in this room, legitimately feel called into these areas of culture and we have kind of fought that calling because we don't think that's Christian well real Christians just go to church all the time you know like when I got saved I thought I had to be a pastor I didn't know you could be a Christian journalist or you could be a sociologist that loves Jesus I didn't know that but some of you in here man you've kind of fought this call because you think it's not what Christians are supposed to do. And I'm telling you, what we learn in Esther chapter 8 is, God positions people as far upstream as He can in culture so that we can change the course of culture. And if that's you this morning and you feel that call, I just want you to raise your hand and say, that's me. I feel that call. Thank you. Just put your hand up and put it right back down. Thank you. Just a couple more minutes. That's you. Thank you. Because we want to end this morning praying for you. We want to end this morning empowering you. God actually has a plan where you are to use you to advance His kingdom.
not to be afraid of pushing in even further into the culture around you to take his gospel to places that a pastor may never get to but you will so with all the bravery that you can muster if you raise your hand I'm going to ask you to stand you don't have to come to the front just stand right where you are if you raise your hand just stand just very quickly thank you thank you and then um we're just going to have some people from the church just kind of come put their hand on your shoulder and we're just going to pray for you and then we'll go eat lunch. And we're going to anoint you and stand with you. I don't think it means you're going to get in an X-wing fighter and shoot orange lasers, but you are going to advance as far as you can. And God's going to position you to advance His kingdom. So God, we just pray this morning for these that have stood. Um, you know, a lot of us, we, we kind of like, I, maybe I should have stood. I don't really know. But these, Lord, that have stood absolutely know that you're calling them, God, into places of influence in their culture. And so we just pray a blessing over their lives. We pray that you would continue to anoint them, God, that you would give them greater and greater insight into timing and, you know, when to say things, when not to say things, and and the courage to be currency in your hands. All the things that we've seen in Esther's life to this point. And that they would would walk out of here today with with that peaceful sense of, I am right where God wants me to be. I'm positioned right where he wants me to be. And where I am, I am going to live a life committed to character and contentment and and the cross. I'm going to share the gospel everywhere I am. And I'm going to trust God to advance me further with greater and greater influence so that I can share the gospel with more and more people. And that culture can be different, can be changed. God, that they would not be people who are just content to just have their section be better, their section be clean, but that you would give them a greater and greater desire to go to the source of culture and change the course of it. We pray an anointing over them, God, for power, creativity, and wisdom. In your name, Jesus. Amen.